rereading that article again it really refreshed my memory as to why I was inspired to connect with you personally and really I guess dissect your brain and find out why you're passionate about making this your mission to you know generate quality food for an abundance of people in a more sustainable fashion so you know I wanted to welcome you to the talks of life podcast Everett if you would love to uh, start us off with kind of introducing a little bit more about yourself your education and your connection with the agricultural industry itself I would love to hear more about that well sure so thanks for having me it's been wonderful to connect with you as well my life story is quite long, so we'll try to condense it into a few bullet points into how I got to where I am now in agriculture. Um, I grew up in a manufacturing family. My father had a manufacturing company. Then I fast forward to my education that was in law. I worked in law um, eight years or less and then left that and got into business and then moved around a little bit, came back and forth to Florida and um, came back to Florida in 2010, realizing that at that time in my life, I still didn't know what I was going to be when I grew up. And I, I had been working in uh, landscaping, horticulture uh, up till then um, when I was away. And so I got a job working with a tomato farm and ended up being a GM of a farm and packing house. Um, uh, that organization grew tomatoes from Puerto Rico to Jersey. Um, and so that was a huge education in agriculture very quickly. And it was also, I found what I wanted to do when I wanted to grow up and it was in growing food. You know, when you say the word agriculture, many things comes to mind for different people. Some people automatically go to dairy cows or, or beef cattle. Uh, others in the Midwest, Ohio Valley, you think of expansive fields of corn and soy and these types of crops, uh, row crops. But for me, agriculture really meant food and growing food and not animals. Nothing wrong with the, with the animal. Well, there might be, depending on who you're However, fruits and vegetables is where I belong. And getting that into that, because it's you know, highly nutritious, it is really the foundation of any diet uh, that's healthy and um, beneficial for someone. So for me, that was it. And so from there, I went to many different uh, aspects. And now during the pandemic, and I'm sure you're going to explore many different avenues with me as we go along, but during the pandemic, um, I, I realized that specialty ag is its own title within the USDA. And so the USDA looks at agriculture in a, in a few buckets. You have the, the animal bucket, beef cattle, chickens, um, uh, hogs, this type of thing. Mm -hmm. You have row crops, you have cotton, you have peanuts, you have, um, like I said, corn, soy, rice, these things. You have forestry, you have fisheries. They kind of end up on their own little sector somehow, fisheries all by themselves. And then you have specialty act, which encompasses almost everything else. And that's really fruits and vegetables. So if you want to be a garlic farmer, you're in specialty ag. If you want to be a tomato farmer, you're in specialty ag. So um, that's kind of how the, the USDA from a government standpoint looks at it. And, and so when you hear me use that term, that's, that's what we're referring to. So 
I found my passion there in that specialty ag. And during the pandemic specifically, I realized that my career was very tenuous given the current circumstances. And so I started doing a ton of uh, uh, research. Uh, I'm at an age and I have two young children where I have to still think about where I'm going to be 15, 20 years from now. And if I'm going to be in specialty ag, which I'm committed to being, um, I need to start pivoting indoors and inside because that's where a good portion of specialty ag will go to in, in the near term and long term. So that's kind of how I ended up uh, here talking to you, uh, long story short, because you were inspired by something you wrote in the article that was promoting indoor agriculture. Mm -hmm. So at the time when you were, I guess, you know, with this tomato farm experience where, you know, did you recognize that there was an issue with the way we were growing in the abundant, you know, the, uh, with monoculture, the, you know, the design of the farm, the actual tilling, the processing, the manufacturing, you know, because you kind of saw it from all different levels and ways of producing and allocating this resource of a tomato um, uh, or commodity, more or less. Uh, you know, so if, did you question during those times, like something's a little off or not right, or that's not going to last long term? The organization I was working for specifically, no, they, they were they did some organic work, but they were conventional, but they were vine, vine ripe tomatoes, meaning that they were at a stage where you could pick them, process them, get them to the grocery store and sell them within 10 days or maybe a little bit longer. Yes, the, the way we grew them was a little irresponsible with the things that we would use in the agricultural field. But as I got more in, integrated into the industry itself and tomato farming from a much wider umbrella of what you would go and get a big beefsteak tomato that's not vine ripe. I mean, that thing is picked like a green softball. Mm. And if it falls off a truck and hits your windshield, it could do some damage. That's not food. That's what's going to be food, but also the food that people don't want to eat. It's pithy, it doesn't have flavor, it doesn't have nutrition, it's pale, whatever the case may be. And I always knew, I was always part of the, the mantra in the back of the head of where we were going with food. You, you had the onset of Monsanto and Roundup and the whole Roundup ready grains and, and corn that was entering the market and the big controversy around GMOs was just starting at that time. And we would get calls at our vine ripe uh, facility at the, and, and it would always it never failed. It was always when our snowbirds, and I, don't, I hope that's not an offensive term, but our, our winter residents <laughs> would flock in. We'd always get, for the first three or four weeks of that flocking, we would get um, calls, Do you, you know, are these tomatoes GMO tomatoes? It was strange to me that, that at that time, people of that age were paying attention to that. <laughs> when GMOs have been part of the ecosystem and the, and the shelf in your shelf for years uh, before that. So I think all the new documentaries that were coming out, huh? <laughs> yeah, there was it, was, it was coming to light, right? And Monsanto had a very specific business model um, and they've since been bought by Bayer and it's not the same company. It could arguably said that they have some of the same people there and they had their hands in government agencies and all the rest of it. And, and we don't need to go down all those rabbit holes. <laughs> But they had a very specific business model and it was extremely successful in that if we get legislature that allows us to do what we want, we don't really care what our company profile, what our PR, they didn't even have a PR department. 
I mean, they literally had none. That was just like, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. I mean, growing food of all things. <laughs> exactly. And so um, the, as a seed company, that was, that was a huge controversy. And then it just kind of started layering the controversy back to different things. And, and other countries around the world had already been on the radar with this stuff and, and taking out some of the harmful chemicals that were being used on the farms and so forth. And it's still a controversy today because you, you have um, products that are banned uh, in other countries that are used prevalently here. And, and, you know, any farmer that uses those products knows that at some point they will be banned here too. You know, a, a, a wise old grower, elderly, a wise elderly grower once told me the only difference between a puppy and a farmer is a puppy grows up and quits whining. And so, and that's coming from him. He's, he's a grower. I'm not trying to offend anybody that's in that, in that boat, but, you know, methyl bromide, um, it's a uh, fumigant that for decades was used in the growing of tomatoes. You would fumigate the soil um, to rid it of nematodes and to rid it of seeds, uh, weed seeds, of anything. It was, it was basically, you would eradicate and chemotherapy the soil. Huh. And it, it was banned, but any ban like that that's in an industry as large as uh, methyl bromide, because it wasn't just tomatoes, it was several different things, it would take years. It would be phased in so that growers could adapt and find new solutions and alternatives and what have you. <clears throat> reason I mentioned methyl bromide specifically because it relates to this conversation how I got to where I am mm -hmm. and so methyl bromide was it was 90 percent of tomato growers used it that were commercial tomato growers bad bad stuff you may remember that the, back in the Bahamas about eight years ago there was a family that died on vacation because methyl bromide was still being used in pest control around condos and it got trapped in the air in this condo and the whole family passed away one weekend on vacation. So it's, it's, it's harmful stuff. You know, it's, it's, it's really potent stuff. To this day, fast forward almost 20 years, you have growers, man, when we used to use methyl bromide, we never had these problems and they still think about what used to be, hmm. the way it used to be. And the reality is that growing is much different now than it was 50 years ago. And what we've done to the soil, um, how the environment is changing around us with climate, um, not just global warming, which is an issue, but more of these disastrous events um, that are commonplace year after year after year. You know, you'd have a once, once every 10 years, you'd have a huge hailstorm that would come by and ruin a portion of your crop. Well, now you have a freeze that never happened in the time that, it, that you would happen. You'd have a drought that would never happen when it would usually, you know, you would have a, a hailstorm, tornado, hurricane, you name it. But year over year over year now, it's just more commonplace to have these disastrous things going on. And so things aren't the way they used to be. Being involved with this tomato farm that I was involved with, we were looking at alternatives to grow conventionally. It was an organic deal or regenerative, but that wasn't even a term then for growing, but we were looking for alternatives that were real alternatives. And one of the best alternatives for methyl bromide when it came to nematode control was crushed crab shell. 
So you take crab shell that's already processed. You're not, you're not robbing more crab out of the ocean than is already there. You're taking it from the processors that are extracting the meat. Mm -hmm. You take the shell, you dry it, and you crush it, you pulverize it. You put it into the soil, and it feeds a bacterial um, colony that works against nematodes. And there's a whole you know, chemistry lesson on chitin and exoskeletons and all that. But we were using crab shell in the soil. And I, it was the first time in my experience that we had had a real solution that was an alternative to a powerful chemical. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, I realized, hey, not everything is snake oil. And I need to really examine these products more closely as to what they're able to do and how they're doing it. And so that led me on a path that led me into consulting and agricultural work. And, you know, uh, um, another client that I've worked with, we're, we're using bees to carry a biological fungicide to the bloom of certain plants. It's just mind blowing to watch this process take place. They're pollinating anyway. We're obviously not harming the bees. We want, you know, they spent millions of dollars and years and years with the EPA to prove that we do not harm bees. And um, to see the benefit to the crop that is as good as or better than the chemical application, that's super exciting, right? And so to be involved in those little successes in this sector was huge for me. And so looking at indoor agriculture just opened up a new window. You know, we saw during COVID, of course, like a little bit of a... I don't want to say collapse, but a kind of an, a brief introduction of what, you know, what a collapse could look like. So it made you question, you know, are there, is food production still happening and at what rate? And, um, you know, are we able to sustain our country as a whole? Um, and I think a lot of people are questioning now more than ever, especially uh, now that our president is speaking of it, you know, with shortages of wheat and grains and things of that nature. Um, so, you know, with your solution way of thinking, I call them solutionaries, of course, but it's um, more or less inspiring to think that there are um, real individuals and real credible projects that are, you know, it's real life. You can actually grow food and we can readapt to, um, you know, feeding each other that way. So if you could kind of share more about that, um, you know, it's not a, necessarily a new concept of this indoor growing or even, a, you know, greenhouse as a whole, but vertical farming, expanding on that would be um, really informational for us. When we say vertical farming, indoor farming, it's new to us, mm. not new to, to people around the world. So, you know, when we go back to agriculture has really seen two different revolutions. One was mechanization. So during the industrial revolution, we had the mechaniz mechanization of farming, right? You, uh, the, the, the biggest and most, you know, racist uh, example is the cotton gin. And what that did to start transforming the mindset of agricultural, um, the people in that sector. Then we had tractors, then we had, you know, implements. But farming in general didn't change in that you, you just did it much easier. You had, you had less labor, you could do what you were doing easier. Well, when World War One and then more importantly, World War II happened, that brought on the advent of chemical fertilizers. So if you go to Lowe's or Home Depot or any home improvement store, hardware store, and you buy fertilizer, you're typically getting, and you see the three numbers, NPK, uh, 1620, 1648. That's a, a blend 
of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. And so, but that's all from a, that's a byproduct. And when we realized that was during the war, when we were producing bombs at an exponential, at a huge rate, right? We were, we were just sending artillery all over the world. And the waste that was being pumped out of these plants that was just housed on the back lot because that, you know, they ran out of places to put it. And they realized everything that was around there was so much greener and lush. And they said, oh my gosh, what, what is this product that we have here on our hands? And so that was the age of what we call the uh, agricultural revolution at that time. And that coincided with the Cold War, wherein um, the capitalist societies were in a race with the communist societies to prove who could feed their population most efficiently under those two very different systems, right? So the communist system is you get, you, you force people to grow these foods, you, you grab it, and then you dispense it through food lines. That's a very, that's a simplification mm -hmm. of, of, you get the point. Mm -hmm. So for a capitalist society, it has to be based around who makes money. And so they, the grocery store idea was born in that you have certain growers growing certain crops, they send that to the market, and then the market sells it to the consumer. And then it just kind of got layered on after that, right? Now you have marketing teams and associations that push, you know, blueberry health, or uh, even a Kaya berry or, or whatever. Okay, let's get that word wrong. But there are, um, it's been overlaid on the capitalist system. And there was even, you would go back and forth with the American president and whoever was, in, you know, I don't know what you call them, the, the supreme empire ruler of communist Russia at the time. And they would tour each other's agricultural outfits and try to prove to each other who was best. So that fed into that whole monoculture world because we need now this piece of land that's ideal to grow a certain type of grain or vegetable or fruit and we need you to pump out as much of that as you can um, and that's how the monoculture was kind of born and so then we fast forward to today which is nothing like it was in 1950 and by the by using these fertilizers which at the time were revolutionary and scientific breakthroughs wonderful things you know the ripple effect is tainted water tainted soil um, an extremely heavy carbon footprint to produce these items and to get them to where they need to be and then to get them into the field. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the pressure that our earth has withstood over the last hundred years is, is just incredible. And any graph or chart that shows you uh, water temperature or sea level or anything else, it's just nothing like we've seen in a few billion years. Because the, 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 the earth follows a heartbeat. And we are in a spike that it doesn't fit anything we've seen for 3 billion years, right? Therein lies the issue and the problem. And so finding new ways to get back to what we used to do, or at least in our minds, that's what we're thinking, because that's where the industry went. Oh, well, we have to quit using these products. That means we have to go back to the way it was in the, in the 20s and the 1880s. And when we grew you know, a third of the yield, Fixing what we're doing doesn't mean reversing what we've done. Mm -hmm. now, the, the future doesn't equal the past.
And so that led me to the, the whole indoor market, which has been expansively growing in, in Europe for 30 years. Um, and now, you know, China, uh, other Asian countries have, have, have really just invested huge amounts of money in some of these massive indoor vertical farms. Um, it's coming to the United States in a different way. And the pandemic hastened that because indoor growing primarily in the U.S. was cannabis. Whether it was off the radar and then it started to be legalized in different spaces. And now, you know, these cannabis grow uh, houses were, were really pumping out a lot of cannabis. And that was indoor growing. And that's the perception that most people in the United States have with indoor growing. Oh, it's just a bunch of hop heads, you know. So there, there was that label. Well, cannabis market is pitiful now. It's it's crashed over the past year. Um, and growing cannabis, there's a lot of new farms that were built, it took a few years to build, and they just they never got up and running because the market's not there for them to grow. And it's a specialized, specialized equipment to do it. So indoor growing the transition of that from cannabis to vegetables is happening now. And the pandemic hastened uh, the pace of that quite a bit to where we're now seeing $52 billion was raised last year for indoor vertical farming. And a good 23 to 25% of that was raised by the United, by folks in the United States. And you have some publicly traded companies, you have some under the radar companies, um, and it's an exciting place to be, but it's also a terrifying place to be because there's a lot of, there's a lack of knowledge in this space. And um, there's also a lack of, how do I say it, playing nicely in the sandbox. Grow, you can grow food in a vertical farm using 98% less land, 97% less water. In a lot of cases, you can do it with zero chemical herbicides and pesticides. Um, this is an HVAC farm, meaning a, an enclosed warehouse type controlled, truly controlled environment farm. Once you get into greenhouse, which is uh, probably a bigger portion of the sector, you start introducing funguses and pests and diseases that have to be controlled in one way or another. So that's why I clarified that. But using 98% less land, 97% less water, little to no chemical treatments, pesticide herbicides. LED lights really opened up the place, a space for vertical farming. And the technology that has been uh, around LED over the last 20 years has advanced tremendously and, and economically to where now you start to build vertical farms and make them very efficient grow houses for food, for leafy greens, herbs, tomatoes, cucumbers, strawberries, peppers, you know, certain crops you can do very well with in these, uh, these elements. There is a portion that still needs to be fixed and it's twofold in my perspective. And the first is um, energy because it, it takes electricity to run all these LEDs and the pumps and the robots and the computers that code and tell the robots what to do when and all the rest of it. It's very cool. It's very Jetsons-like society. However, that requires a lot of power. And so either reducing the need of the, the power that's needed or producing enough renewable power to compensate for what that takes in. That piece of vertical farming is still being figured out. And, but once that's figured out, it becomes literally the best way to grow. 
those crops that you can. And it will never replace conventional farming. However, it will, there is a huge transition to that and a huge part of the production in this country that will go to that in the short term and long term. The second part is more complicated and it's, and it's in our current state, right? We have an increasingly divided population and you wanna call it left and right, blue and red, whatever the case may be. When we go to traditional agriculture, farming, whether it's cattle or whether it's raising blueberries, it's a very red area to be, right? Very good people, uh, high, high values, high work ethics, generational farmers. They've had a tremendous amount of legacy passed down to them that they are proud of and should be proud of. In the indoor farming space, you have that that left wing element that is they know how to raise money, they know how to code, they know how to collect data, um, they know robotics, you know, they're, they're all college educated, very smart um, mathematicians and scientists. They don't get along together, these two groups. <laughs> So when these folks start trying to grow food and they end up wasting tens of thousands of plants and efforts, and you know, that's why this investment is huge because the money that's being put into it, pumped into it to figure out how to produce a crop to get it to market, it's intense because of the losses that they're incurring. And when red or when left doesn't want to talk to right, there's a huge gap there. And that's where folks like us and our company, we really hope to fill that gap or at least make a big play into the end of the middle, because this is where the future is for us on both sides. Traditionally, we need that legacy. We need those, that work ethic, the understanding of how farming works business-wise, logistically, mechanically, as well as, uh, you know, um, just from a daily get get up and get out of bed at 4 a.m. to get this, the, the day started. But they also need the coders and the robotics and, the, and everyone in that field and the money to invest in this. And when you, if, if, you know, when we can get to that space where both are talking very well to each other, to me, we could leapfrog over what the Dutch have been doing for 30 years. Um, it's getting that those two brain spaces in the same space that is the challenge. And so given the opportunity to do that is exciting, is thrilling. Um, and to bring food closer to home, you know, we import 60% of our produce comes from outside of the country. That's insane. Mm -hmm. When you think about Fuel security, right? That's big on people's minds right now. Inflation's out of control. Totally get it. And um, energy security, excuse me, not fuel security, but energy security. It's, it's, been a, it's been a mantra since Bush that we have to worry about fuel because we're relying on Iran, Iraq, well, not now Iraq, but the, the Saudis, um, all these, you know, politically unstable places for our energy. And now we see it with Ukraine and Russia in, in, in real time. Um, food insecurity is a way bigger problem than energy insecurity. If you cut off the fuel tap, yes, it's going to be disastrous and it's going to be, it's going to invoke tragedy, but we can still find food if we know how to grow. 
But if we turn off the imports from other countries that, that get here, whether it's because there's no diesel fuel to put in the ship to get it here or whatever, we've lost 60% of our food supply, our fresh, our fresh produce supply. That's, to me, a, another talking point that needs to be addressed by both sides is the food security that we need in this country. And it's not an American thing, it's a community thing. Every community should be able to supply healthy food for themselves to sustain them to the next year, to the next season, whatever it may be. And so that's another part of the mission of, of the folks that I usually work with. Well, that's, um, that's great. You know, I was introduced to this idea of a food desert. It kind of blew my mind thinking like, what, that's a thing. Um, but also recognizing that it was kind of in my own backyard that I recognized my disconnect to where my food was coming from, um, how far it's traveling. And then, you know, realizing, um, you know, it's not easy to grow myself, but, you know, also realizing along the way and, and being educated, of course, um, with all these new documentaries, just about how we have totally destroyed our topsoil with our tilling and ways of um, growing for 100 years plus. And, you know, it's almost too late to reverse the effects. And, you know, there's these composting systems and all that need to be in place. Um, but it seems like for me, almost a no-brainer that we should have been doing these 30, 40, 50 years ago if we knew that this was going to be an ongoing issue. Um, but yes, it's like, okay, let's not continue to live in the past, but use these innovative, uh, whether it's technology or just even coming together to recognize, hey, it's people, planet, profit, you know, the triple bottom line of like, we can all have we all want nutritional food. Maybe, yes, some would rather choose a bag of Doritos other than, you know, a fresh salad, but that's, you know, life's, you know, beautiful ebb and flow of, you know, that and choice I, making, but. Make a quick comment there. And, and I agree, yeah, bag of Doritos, fresh salad. The issue we see, especially with school kids, is we get in, because in, our units at Eco Supply, we have curriculum, we get into schools, we show kids how to grow, or teachers do. And for the first time, they see fresh food sometimes if they live in that food desert that's an urban, in an urban setting. And they pick fresh lettuce and they eat it on the bus before they get home. It's so delicious. Mm. Not the same lettuce they're getting at the grocery store that traveled 3,000 miles to get there. And so given that you have a closer food supply means that you can grow food for taste and nutrition instead of durability and yield, and then people make more choices for more healthy food because they know at, the, at their core, Doritos are much more unhealthy for them than fresh food. But wow, that doesn't taste like hardly anything. I'll take Doritos any day. When you change that perception by fresh, real, fresh, nutritious food, you see, and, and I think the rate was, I forget what I gave you, but it's a 30% increase in kids in the span of less than a semester. They're eating healthier because they want to, because they, they taste the difference. Even picking, um, what was it? Barbados cherry, I think it was, out of the food forest at FGCU. But again, that real connection of like, oh, wow, a fruit tree that should be abundant everywhere, but a new fruit that's just not introduced, um, whether it's lack of education, our true societal disconnect, you know, this whole what food, you know, were you even raised with type of thing? It's a very cultural um, almost identification with you know what you do identify as real food and food, right? 
Um, but I do believe that everyone deserves to have, you know, of course, healthy, nutritious food, which, you know, you've mentioned that it's your personal mission statement to kind of make that um, happen. And I love to see that you're it is essentially your day-to-day lifestyle, right? We recently just harvested our farm at the office. And I say farm, I'm talking about nine square feet. It's vertical. I'm growing uh, 144 uh, lettuce plants currently. Well, some alfalfa, so not 140. Anyway, I harvested because we did some videos, some PR work here too, and it kind of gotten overgrown. It was real bushy and we harvested. And, you know, what do you do with, 15 gallon size bags of lettuce <laughs> you know there's no way I have a place to store that in my home and so the neighbors got it you know our friends got it staff here and, and, and my landlord their staff we shared and they were excited about it you know man what a fulfilling day that is you know and, and for me it was just a day of getting things cleaned up to move on to the next project but at the end of the day you go wow look at that I just fed 20 people for a good period of time. And all I did was my, my everyday activity. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Who, who can say they have that job, you know? Yeah, no, that's pretty rewarding. Having a connection to our food, we should have it. It's, you know, nothing um, out of the ordinary. We, you know, we used to have it, you know, at some point someone in, within the family was growing food. Yeah. It's just that disconnect again, whether the you know, grandpa sold the land and everyone was now disconnected and more urbanized. Um, it's still definitely a connection that we can collaborate and rebond together. So thank you for your time and sharing everything that you did. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Brittany. It was a pleasure to be with you. I uh, appreciate the opportunity. I said that's life. And as funny as it may seem, some people get their kicks stopping on a dream. Let it, let it get me down Cause this fine old world